0: Good evening. Uh, Welcome uh, to uh, this uh, meeting with uh, our Bishop uh, Robert Snazy. So privileged to serve um, uh, with Bishop Snazy and under Bishop Snazy, and so uh, so privileged to serve with you at Alamo Heights. And so uh, grateful that you're here, grateful that Bishop Snazy's here. And after I pray, I'm going to turn it over to him, and he's going to talk for uh, quite a while about uh, how... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I figured that out recently. I did have a four-item agenda, but now it's, it's declining. So anyway, uh, if you'll join me in prayer. We bless you, O Lord our God, uh, for you've given us life, sustained our life, and brought us to this season of life. We thank you that, for that. We thank you for what you've done in, the, uh, in this church and how you have uh, been there since the beginning in 1910. you continue work. Uh, through us today, and you have uh, wonderful plans for us for the future. So we thank you for your presence with us and ask that our hearts and minds might be open to a greater understanding of you and your church and your mission in the world. We ask also that you would, uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, uh, bless Bishop Snazy not just this evening, but uh, each day as he goes about uh, your business uh, leading uh, your flock. This we ask in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So, oh, thank you. <laughs> Bishop, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you. All right. Thank you.
1: Thank you, David. Well, it's good to be with you, and I appreciated the opportunity to be with you in worship this morning in the sanctuary services, and uh, uh, just what a, what a good spirit there was to that this morning, and I appreciate very much uh, that opportunity. Um, whenever I gather to talk uh, about kind of the, the appointment process, as we call it in the Methodist Church. I uh, always have to figure there's a mix of folks. There's people who were born Methodist and you know grew up United Methodist. They, they know how this process works, and, uh, and they could be up here telling you uh, how it works as well as I could. On the other hand, there are folks that, what's all that about? What does he mean by an appointment, and how does this work, and who is he, and why is he involved in this? <laughs> So I'm gonna I'm gonna start with just uh, kind of not assuming a whole lot. Just give a, a, a general overview. Um, my name's Robert Schneese. I'm Bishop of the Rio Texas Conference. There are about uh, uh, 48 bishops of the United Methodist Church in the United States, and about 20, uh, 2020 or 22 uh, United Methodist bishops in the global church in Africa and in Europe and in the Philippines. And uh, and that uh, each each of us presides over. Uh, what's called a conference and the conference that I preside over is the Rio Texas conference. Uh, I grew up in this area and I'm familiar with the churches in this area and uh, and as I said this morning I've known uh, David for a a long long time Uh, and I've returned to serve as bishop to this area but after many years of service as a pastor in this conference I was elected bishop and assigned to Missouri and served for 12 years as bishop there Uh, and then uh, and then the maximum time a bishop can stay in one place is 12 years, and, and so uh, I was reassigned to uh, the, uh, the Rio, Texas conference. Uh, you hear me using words like, uh, I applied for, no, you don't hear me using words like, I applied for, or I wanted, or I decided to move, I'm saying I was assigned to, because every person who's an ordained elder of the United Methodist Church uh, submits themselves to a larger system, and this goes back to the very days of John Wesley, that says I will go where sent. And uh, why is that? Because uh, because it's not about what I like. It's not about what's convenient for me. It's not about what uh, what's my first priority. It's not about what kind of salary I want to have or what neighborhood I want to have. It's, Lord, uh, Lord, how can I be of use to you? And and in the United Methodist Church, our, our deep kind of theological understanding of that is, uh, is based on Jesus who said, I came not to be served, but to serve, and, uh, and to offer ourselves and, to, uh, and to, uh, to protect against self-serving impulses by submitting to other people to make that decision for the greater mission of the church. So uh, I was assigned here. Uh, I'm, I'm delighted to be here. I've never been assigned somewhere that uh, uh, that I wasn't didn't end up being delighted to be. I'll put it that way. <laughs> but um, but also each United Methodist pastor uh, submits to that same uh, that same kind of theological basis of uh, I will go where I sent for the larger mission of the church. And in the United Methodist system, it's the bishop. Uh, who has the final authority? Is invested with the final authority of determining where pastors are assigned, where they are appointed, and um, and that that isn't something I'm making up. That's nothing I'm trying to grab for. It's not an authority that I'm trying to uh, protect or something. It just it's it's part of our United Methodist heritage, uh, going back to our very roots, when uh, John Wesley uh, ordained and sent a couple of folks to America, and they founded the what was called the Methodist Episcopal Church, 1784. Uh, th- there was a general superintendency that was called the bishop's office. Uh, the episcopacy is the formal word for it. And what episcopos means, episcopos, picture scope, it's overseer. And, uh, and so that's what a bishop does. Now, um, so I'm going to start by saying what's the what 's the role that uh, that I have in the uh, assignment of your future senior pastor what 's the role that uh, the district superintendent and the cabinet has uh, in that what 's the role of uh, of your congregational leaders through your board of stewards and uh, and kind of what 's the role of the congregation in that and um, And I remember early in ministry there was a district superintendent who was uh, teaching people who work, uh, worked in leadership, like the Board of Stewards, who uh, handled personnel issues for the church. And, and so it had a number of these folks who chaired these committees and served on these committees. And there were a number of pastors in the room. And then the district superintendent was in the room. And the district superintendent said, uh, before we start the meeting, I need to tell all of you that there's one thing that all of us have in common here. The district superintendent, the, uh, the pastors, and those who serve on Staff Parish Relations Committee or board of stewards, and that 's that none of us make the appointments, only the bishop does, and all of us stand in a consultative role to help the bishop make, uh, make what is the, the, the most uh, careful uh, discerning uh, mission focused uh, decision and so like i said this isn 't that 's just the, the way it is there so what 's the role of the Bishop the role of the bishop in these uh, It's already started some months ago, is is to listen carefully, to learn everything I can, uh, to visit with the staff, to visit with the leadership, uh, to get to know your congregation even better uh, in anticipation of the change of senior pastors, Uh, and also to rely upon consultations that come through a whole variety of means. What's the role of district superintendent? Uh, There are five district superintendents who work under me that cover this whole region of it covers from uh, San Angelo to Kerrville to Austin, San Antonio, Victoria, Corpus Christi, and everything south to the border. There's five different kind of folks who are my representatives in the field who are supervisors of, of groups of pastors that range from uh, 50 to 150, okay? And so I work with them, and they're much more closely engaged. So while I have met twice and had two uh, lengthy, good conversations with your board of stewards, The district superintendent of this area uh, has had even more frequent contact and has met with the church staff and just uh, uh, worked with different voices within this church. Um, And so, um, the other thing that I would say is that the process I'm about to describe of how we gather information and study churches and make decisions about churches, uh, this is something that occurs every year, although it's usually unseen if there isn't a change of pastors. So every single United Methodist elder uh, clergy person is appointed one year at a time. So uh, back in the day, David was not appointed here for a 24-year term or a four-year term that was renewed six times. Uh, Every single year, uh, this process that I'm about to describe was gone through, uh, except most of the times, it, it 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 didn't have the significance as it would when we know that there's going to be a change right so uh so here's how it goes how do i get information for that in order to make this decision uh how does uh, how do we get to know your congregation uh first of all there is the uh engagement of the district superintendent with your congregation and as i said that's happened uh, many times over this last year as greg hackett has uh, especially in these last few months, anticipated that there'd be a change. Um, second is that every year, your board of stewards uh, provides an evaluation of uh, each of the clergy on staff, uh, including uh, and as kind of especially the senior pastor. Also, each year, uh, David and each of the clergy uh, provide a self-evaluation. And then each year, Each one of them has an evaluation that's not just done by your board of stewards and by themselves, but then is done by the district superintendent. Also, the district superintendent is present with you in charge conferences and some of the meetings where you make critical decisions. And so he's there at those uh, kind of junctures. And so uh, we gather from that. Um, Also, each year that uh, David's been senior pastor and true for all the elders on staff here, there is a, uh, not just an evaluation, but at the end of the year, there's called a consultation process, uh, a sheet. And what that consultation process is asking the leaders of the congregation, uh, as you look at the mission of your church, as you look at uh, uh, the ministry of your church, as you look at the, the work and uh, fruitfulness of your pastor, would you recommend that this, uh, that this pastor remain as pastor for this next year? Or would you recommend that, uh, that for reasons of either conflict or uh, something kind of pretty serious going on that doesn't look like it's working, it's just not working in the church anymore, would you, uh, they can, they can uh, make the request, make the recommendation that the pastor be moved. Now, all these are just recommendations. Or they can say either. It's a season in the church's life where, we, uh, where it's not essential for this uh, pastor to remain uh, but, uh, but, but we're not asking for a move, right? So each of David's 24 years, your church has completed a form like that. Also, each of those 24 years, David has, uh, has completed a form of his own and turned it in uh, through the superintendent to the bishop uh, without it going necessarily through the board of stewards in which he basically answers the same question. As you think about how things are going in the ministry here, as you think about your gifts and, uh, and, and skills, as you think about you know, the future of this church, what's your recommendation? That you remain? Uh, that you move? Uh, or either? And so, uh, so, what brings us to the situation where we are uh, at this point is that David has asked to move. And uh, that was not the board of stewards. Recommendation. That was not my recommendation. It's not the cabinet of superintendents' recommendation. It's honoring uh, David's own uh, discernment, and you have uh, you have been the recipients of his ministry, of his wisdom and insight and vision for ministry for so many years. And you know that when uh, when David thinks deeply about something and prays his way through it, it's uh, it's it's not it's it's not something to be taken lightly. And uh, so it's in honoring that that, uh, that we anticipate a change in senior pastors for this church. So all that information is gathered as well as statistical information. Each church um, of all 370, 380 in the Rio Texas Conference, we look at, uh, you know in the immediate past, the last 10-year statistics on any range of numbers, attendance, membership, Uh, financial strength, giving beyond the local church, uh, salaries, I mean, all kinds of information, number of people in small groups and Sunday schools and Bible studies and the like, Uh, number of people in children's ministries. We we look at this. Uh, I've got a book because we just finished uh, a step I'm about to talk about. Just finished this this last week. I have this like notebook. Now it's all on computer, but I like physical still because I, you know, wasn't born with an iPhone in my hand. And, <laughs> and, uh, and so it's uh, hundreds of pages deep, but it has those, um, those multi-year statistics for all 370, 380 churches in the Rio Texas Conference. And, um, and those are taken seriously as well. We look for trends, uh, we, and, and, and so you can see there's just this constellation of information that's kind of gathered here and there, and then it starts to form patterns. And based on those patterns, uh, we make the decision about, uh, often we, we're, we're the ones that make the decision that a pastor, it'd be better if this pastor moved. Now, why do pastors move? John Wesley's answer, why do you move your pastors around all the time? Which when he was doing this, these were like anywhere from six-month appointments to a year-and-a-half appointments, is he said, the prospect of doing greater good thither than of remaining. Than, than of remaining. The prospect. You use thither very much. That's a labyrinthine in the sermon this morning, right? Um, but, but it's... Uh, so the reason for many moves uh, is that someone takes on higher responsibility. So uh, when David moved here from his previous church, it's, it was uh, thought at that time uh, you know, here's a person who has experience in this size church, this size church. Uh, we think he's ready for, uh, for one of the largest churches in our conference, Alamo Heights United Methodist Church. Um, sometimes it works the opposite way. Something's not working out and that's the cause for a move. And then, uh, and then the most obvious kind of causes for us having to make an appointment is retirements or, uh, or, or people stepping out of ministry for one reason or another. So, um, so that's a little bit of kind of all of this uh, goes together. And then uh, after all those churches have completed all those consultation forms, and we have all those evaluations from, the, uh, from like your board of stewards and from all the pastors, and we have all that statistical information. And, and then uh, the, the, the district superintendents and I sit down, and we spend three days together in January in which we go over every church every full-time pastoral appointment. And um, with a special focus on those where we expect that there might be a move or we know there's going to be a move because uh, someone has retired, right? And, uh, and then after having done all that, we have a list of all these churches uh, that have openings because of retirements or deaths. We have churches that are... Uh, where there's uh, likely to be a move either because of family circumstances or because uh, of something like that. Then we have the either churches, and then we also have a list of kind of gifted folks who we think uh, could be entrusted and should be entrusted with larger responsibilities or, uh, or have gifts that can be used in other ways. And, and we, uh, we kind of assess the whole uh, lay of the land there. And then after talking about this uh, for at some length for two or three days, we draw up the list of uh, priority. What are the most strategic appointments that we're going to make, uh, you know, this year for the Rio Texas Conference? What drives the appointment, con- uh, uh, the, the the conversation, the appointment process in this conference is number one. The mission of the church comes first. The mission of the church comes first. That means that uh, that this is not about uh, well, who needs a promotion? It's not about. Uh, well, we got a problem over here. Maybe we need to move it over there. It's, um, it's, um, it's what is best. It's going to multiply the witness of the United Methodist Church in this, in this particular congregation, in this particular community. Uh, and we put that above all else. So uh, there are often uh, many people who want a particular church that maybe has come open by retirement. And, uh, and if we go through everyone who says, send me, send me, and, uh, and we don't find the person who we think is going to further the mission of the church in that place, uh, we're, we're not going to engage with any of those folks, right? Uh, we're going to determine uh, through our discernment of who has the gifts and uh, has shown the record of fruitfulness that, uh, that merits that. So, um, so let's say that uh, we have a, a church like Alamo Heights or any church that has kind of a known opening by retirement, And um, this year, the number one church, the uh, most significant appointment we'll make, our first strategic church, uh, is uh, Alamo Heights United Methodist Church. It does not mean that it is the first appointment that will be made because there are all kinds of churches of other sizes that will be much simpler and quicker to make decisions about, right? So don't think if you start seeing on the conference website announcements about other pastors being assigned here or there, or other places that they've forgotten about us. No, it's that uh, usually the larger the church, the more complex the system and the conversation that needs to go on. Um, so at, uh, at some point, what will happen is, uh, is uh, we will come to some determination about who a pastor might be. Uh, we, might, uh, we might actually have two or three people that we talk about and say, uh, maybe we list 12 folks. And there's three of them that really rise to the top of meeting, not just the criteria that we think meet, uh, will help further the mission of the church, but meets the uh, the characteristics, key qualities that the board of stewards has identified as most important for your church leadership in this time in its life. And so we have maybe start with twelve. There's three worth talking, you know, really going more deeply in mind with, and uh, and and what that um, what happens next is. Uh, as a district superintendent, we'll talk with, uh, with each of those folks, those three or four, and say, would you like to be considered? Would you like to be in the pool of consideration uh, for Alamo Heights United Methodist Church? Now, you would think, who out of those 380, you know, churches, who, pastor, what pastor would say no to Alamo Heights United Methodist Church? Well, there are some pastors who have... Uh, would love to serve here but they're uh they've got a uh, uh, they've got a son or daughter who's entering their senior year next year right and they're head of the football team or <laughs> you know and and they just cannot they really don't want to be considered at this time there are others who uh, uh perhaps a spouse has a a job that uh that is like maybe a tenured position somewhere that uh that cannot be relocated. Uh, there's any number of things that would cause someone to say, "Thank you, I would love to serve that church." And and I got to say, it's the United Methodist way. Every one of these folks will say it and actually mean it. And I mean, I mean, this is this is in our blood as United Methodist pastors will say, "I will go where sent, Bishop." And if you assign me, I will go. But I need you to let need to let you know about these family circumstances or about the, and and so I, I would prefer not to, but I will go. Right, so um, so at some point there will be a person that uh, that I will uh, because of uh, the size of this church and the impact of this church that it will move beyond a, con, uh, a district superintendent conversation into a personal conversation with me, and uh, and we'll go over all kinds of things. Uh, nowadays, uh, I don't know whether to let this. It's no secret, but it's like, do I really want to feed this or not? Nowadays. Uh, before we even get to that part, there's a chance I can, I've can. i listened to 15 or 20 of the person's sermons online and, and seen the, some of the scope of their ministry just through that, not just through superintendents, not just through personal visits. And so there's a, a great deal of kind of pre-screening that goes on before we even reach that point of the conversation. Does this per, ser, person have the, uh, the, the preaching capabilities to sustain uh, the, uh, the, the the attention in a provocative and compelling way uh, of you know eight hundred people in a in a space this size. There are many folks who are excellent preachers when there's forty five people present, but it's a it's a, it's a whole different thing to stand up here and hold the attention of the last person on the last pew for twenty three minutes right? So, uh, so there's lots of things that are uh, taken into consideration for that. Uh, if I've determined that, uh, that this is uh, the person, and after consultation, and believe me, deep uh, prayer, the whole, this whole process is saturated, saturated in prayer. There isn't a single conversation we have along the way that doesn't begin with prayer. Every time we make a phone call to a pastor about the possibility of an appointment, uh the the super i mean this is part of our practice is we stop we give all our attention to that we make none of these calls as we're driving somewhere or when we're distracted by other things we enter into a time of prayer and then we talk to the person but at some point through all of this we determine that this is the person that uh that best meets uh, um the the qualifications has the gifts and skills and experience to uh to deepen and extend the mission and ministry of this church. At that point, um, uh, just to let you know how this kind of unfolds, uh, the district superintendent will call uh, Tom Wright, who is the chair of your board of stewards, and say, um, the bishop would like you to gather the board of stu- uh, stewards on such and such a night, Wednesday night, say. And, uh, and that's a private, that's a that there's, that's an unpublicized meeting, and at that meeting, uh, most of the time it's a district superintendent who in, who, in, uh, uh, who uh, in introduces a new pastor to a congregation uh, for, uh, for strategic congregations and particularly large congregations. Uh, I do that myself, and so on that Wednesday evening, the board of stewards would gather, and, uh, and I'll... Uh, walk in, and the superintendent will be present, and with me will be uh, the pastor uh, and his or her spouse, and uh, and I'll introduce the new pastor. There'll be a conversation. They'll get to know each other. They'll talk about how do we let the rest of the congregation know. Um, now, at that point, you're, you might think, uh, so won't they just immediately go online and Facebook and say, you won't believe who our new pastor is. And, and uh, actually they can't do that because that pastor is currently the pastor of a church that doesn't know they're losing a pastor, right? So the next step in the process is, uh, is somewhere else in the system, a superintendent calling a board of stewards and saying, we need to meet with you on, <laughs> on Thursday night. And, uh, <laughs> and in that one, they say, uh, your pastor has an announcement that he or she would like to make. And that's, I have accepted the appointment to Alamo Heights United Methodist Church. Right? And so the communication to the church where someone's leaving and the communication to the church that is receiving the pastor all has to be coordinated so it kind of happens in a way that doesn't make anybody feel left out or surprised or shocked or anything like that. Um, This is usually where someone will say, but what if he introduced the pastor to the board of stewards and they go, oh my gosh, (laughs) what what if after 45 minutes of conversation, they're going, "Uh, I don't know that this is going to work. So, uh, you know, it depends on how you want to do the math on this. I served, uh, I presided over 850 congregations in Missouri, and each pastor was appointed each year. So you could say I made 850 appointments each year, but there'd actually be closer to 250, 300 changes of appointments. And so 250, 300 of these introductions, um, and with all those, and then two and a half years here in, in uh, Rio, Texas conference, um, I think there have been maybe three occasions when there was something in that conversation that became known, or there was just a sense that this was not going to take, this was not the right, this isn't working. Often it's unknown information, it's, it's a... Uh, uh, well, I mean, I'm not going to get any, any details, but it's it's like uh, suddenly you realize that this person is actually related to a person, and, that, and there's uh, and it, it just suddenly becomes complicated or something. But um, but it's not going to be forced. I want to let you know that. But uh, but that is the process. So what's um, what's then the, uh, uh, the 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 role of the board of stewards and of the congregation? Uh, when they um, when when a new pastor is announced, uh, one is is to be as receptive and encouraging as possible. And I'm not saying that to kind of you know uh, you know affirm the decision or something like that that, that has come to in this. It's that uh, it, it's that so much of uh, of how a pastoral ministry goes when someone's new to a congregation. Is kind of formed in those first six to twelve months. And uh, and so it's important that we be open, that we be willing to give people the benefit of the doubt. I mean, the only thing I can stand here tonight and guarantee you is it's not going to be David Mitnitsky, right? And and, and that's that's uh So it's not going to have the same mix of gifts. Now, it doesn't mean it's not going to be the right appointment. But the David Metnitsky, you know right now wasn't the one who was appointed here 24 years ago either. <laughs> As a matter of fact, you know, so this is a fun kind of uh, a game of the imagination, uh, you know, playing with the imagination is if you brought the uh, David Mendinsky from 24 years ago into an into a, uh, introduction right now, people might look at that and say, well, I don't know. He's mighty young. <laughs> he doesn't have experience with this. You know, has he ever done that? Has he ever preached to a congregation this size, right? Uh, so it's not going to have the same, uh, same mix of gifts that David does. When you think about pastoral ministry and what makes for effectiveness, you can list any number of things from uh, personableness to ability to preach to administration to uh, pastoral care to teaching to I mean, uh, work with children and you work with elderly. You can go down this whole uh, kind of set of criteria and you could almost take a pastor and say, where is this pastor on a, on a scale of one to 10? And uh, oh, there's about a nine, about a seven. A ten on this one, maybe a four on this one. Well, uh, David scores extremely high on this, 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 and this, but he's also kind of a seven on this and a six on this. But actually, you know, you know, your new pastor is going to score high on a whole range of things, but it might not be exactly the same things that David scores high on. Does that make sense? And that's actually uh, part of John Wesley's uh, reason for what we call the itinerancy and the sending of pastors. And I wish I had, uh, could. uh, it's on my computer in the truck, but I wish I had the quote here to get it exact because it's in that, you know, fun Victorian English again. But it's basically, says, I have yet to meet any pastor who has all the gifts that are required in one station uh, for... uh, you know, for beyond a certain length of time kind of thing. That it's like one brings this and the other brings that, and, uh, and the congregation is in need of both, right? So, um, so the next thing I want to say is when you're thinking, so what's the pool of pastors through which that we kind of look to? Uh, we begin for, but for those uh, with those elders who are members of the Rio Texas Conference of the United Methodist Church. And, uh, and so that's pastors who are serving in that region that I just described earlier. On the other hand, uh, uh, with pastors, especially of large congregations, um, that search extends far beyond the boundaries of the annual conference. So, uh, you know, the conversation I had with David in September where he said, yeah, you know, final answer, <laughs> Um, and then the congregation, he told, shared it with the congregation in October. That, um, which, which by the way, uh, I appreciate that. Uh, David has given you a far greater lead time than might have been possible if, uh, if we were all just learning right now that he really uh, has discerned that he'd uh, prefer to serve somewhere else, right? And so from that time, uh, all the way through the fall, in numerous conversations with other bishops, I've had the ability to say, uh, you know, we're going to have uh, a significant church uh, opening uh, in a senior pastor role that we may or may not have that person in our conference. So I need you to be thinking and praying about it. And then as time goes along into late December and early January, that's even got, gotten pretty specific about, you know, uh, can I talk to so-and-so in your conference? And uh, so sometimes folks say, well, uh, can't we do a nationwide search of some sort? That nationwide search is being done, but it's being done through the way the United Methodist Church does it, which is, uh, which is me being in contact with bishops of other places. And so sometimes I hear about some, uh, a particular pastor that causes me to speak to the bishop. Sometimes I speak to the bishop and they point me to a particular pastor And so that work's already been underway for for some time and is uh, kind of crystallizing even more uh, in these weeks right now. Uh, When are we going to announce that there's a new pastor here? Uh, I'd I'd love to say, boy, that's going to be quick. We got it all wrapped up here. Um, No, um, my guess is it's going to be sometime in March. Now, uh, why is that? Uh, when I leave here in a few minutes, David's going to be sharing about some other things going on in February that are going to be taking up a considerable amount of time and energy in the United Methodist Church. And, um, and I, I, I want to get this right. I I don't want to get this fast. Right. And, um, and so that's a little bit about how this works. I, um, I, I mentioned earlier, so what's kind of the role of the congregation, uh, I'm going to say just a couple of practical things, and then kind of a spiritual uh, undergirding of it. Um, I uh, I I was flying one time uh, out of a small airport, and I think it was in the Carolinas or something. But it was a it's a small airport where you go in, and, and you know, first of all, there's a pretty big kind of open area, and then I got my my uh, boarding pass. And uh, this is in days before the the screening of everything the way it is now, and I, I got this. Uh, uh, oh wait a second! I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna start the story in another place. Um, an, another airport experience. We're, we're going to change gears here. I, uh, I and I remember exactly where this was from, so. Um, I remember a flight from St. Louis to Dallas. I was living in St. Louis, in, uh, in Missouri, and flew out of St. Louis. And uh, St. Louis in the winter, oh my gosh, planes can be delayed, They're, it can be iced over, it can be miserable, especially if you need to make connections and everything. And, and I was going to need to make a connection through Dallas. And I get on the plane, and uh, lo and behold, uh, miracle of miracles, uh, everyone boards the plane earlier than what they anticipated. And so they close the door and the pilot says, we're scheduled for uh, uh, an early departure. And so we, uh, you know, taxied toward the, the runway at, at like, you know, 15 minutes early because everyone was there and there was no reason not to do it. And we get out there and, and we get, uh, you know, there was no line. There was no, you know, we didn't have to wait for eight other planes to take off. So we're in the sky and somewhere about midway through the flight says, you know, because we got an early departure and because, uh, uh, you know, we got a bit of a, uh, you know, head, uh, tailwind here and everything, uh, we're looking at arriving uh, anywhere from 35 to 40 minutes early. So, of course, everybody's, you know, anxiety goes down about making transitions and uh, making connections and everything. And so the plane... Uh, Lands and sure enough, we're like forty minutes early, and it and it gets you know immediately you know sent to the gate, and at the gate you know people are you know and and, and we go up and and then uh, we stop and the little boing goes off and everybody starts getting their uh, their luggage out of the overhead uh, bins, and um, and I was sitting kind of in the window seat on the left where I could see the jet bridge. And, and there was someone there just trying everything. And, uh, and you could see they were having trouble. And everybody's standing up, just ready to get off the thing. And finally, they get it moving. And it moves, and then it stops about three feet short of the, uh, of the door of the plane. And you can see it right there. And they couldn't get it fixed. They couldn't get the jet bridge to move another three or four feet. And pretty soon people in orange, you know, jackets are down there. Pretty soon some are working down below. Finally, the pilot comes on and says, well, there's a a missing part. That uh, that someone's on the way bringing that, but they think they're going to have this fixed. To make a long story short, we... uh, We didn't get off that plane until 30 minutes after it was due to arrive. Right? Now, here's the thing. You know, however many miles it is from St. Louis to Dallas, think about about what percentage of that distance four feet is. (laughs) And yet it's as if we never even arrived at all. So, uh, So to just play on this metaphor a minute. Um, me, your board of stewards, uh, the cabinet, the district superintendent, we're going to do everything we can to, to get this person to have this safe trip here and a smooth landing and come up, you know, to the jet bridge, but we're going to have to have a team on the ground that can complete the transaction. And can make the connection, right? In other words, you have to open your hearts. You're going to have to open your arms to the person that is sent, so that this is a is a good pastoral match. Um, Otherwise, the other work doesn't count for anything. So. so you've got a couple of jobs in these next few months. One is, is figure out the best way and, the, and throw how, how are you going to throw the biggest party ever through to celebrate the ministry of David Metnitsky for 24 years? Then you also have to be thinking about how do you throw just as big a party a few weeks later for someone whose name you do not now know and make them feel as at home as, uh, as you did with David. We need a ground crew <laughs> who, can, who can get the jet bridge to where the connection is made. Um, now, in a little more uh, subtle or spiritual or kind of interpersonal way, um, any kind of transition in a senior uh, pastor role or in a pastoral role really of any kind brings with it a certain amount of grief as well as a certain amount of anticipation, brings with it a certain amount of anxiety uh, as well as a certain amount of hope. And, uh, and that's all natural. And so I need to just say straight out that it is, uh, that it is no betrayal of your relationship to David to be excited about the possibility of a new person coming here and what that ministry will bring. Neither is it a betrayal of your openness and a a welcome to the new pastor to feel a sense of grief about losing a relationship with someone you've had for a long time and who has affected your life, right? That it's possible to both grieve the loss as well as anticipate and be excited about new possibilities. And you're going to see people going all over the map on this. And we've just got to keep each other steady with that. So that's, uh, that's how the appointment process works. Um, Tom, do you have anything you want me to particularly address? Or any other board of stewards? David, well, I just uh, want to assure you that uh, you are in my prayers daily, and I, and I solicit your prayers daily as well, and, uh, and there is, uh, there's nothing that's going to guide me more than the mission of, of Jesus Christ through the church and through Alamo Heights United Methodist Church. That's what comes first. And uh, and we're going to be giving our very best, opening our hearts and minds, having the deepest conversations we can, to make sure that this is an appropriate and uh, and fruitful appointment. David, I think that's it. Thank you.
2: Now is it on? Thank you, everybody, for being here tonight, which we had a few more items on the agenda, and David and I just made the decision that we were going to change the order. Um, But we're very thankful that the bishop could come here tonight so that you could hear from him the process that they're going through and also to hear from him the importance that they've placed on this appointment to our church. And I can assure you that throughout this process, it has been very consistent both in discussions with the bishop as well as the district superintendent and we're very thankful all the for the time that they spent with us learning and for what uh, our prayerful request that they continue uh, to seek the person that's going to best fill the role um, moving on from that I was going to give a quick financial update and Um, Give a quick financial update and then I'm going to turn it over to David as he has a few other items to discuss But I just wanted to go over how we finished up the year and what we're looking for for this next year So for last year um, We had a budget of approximately 3.6 million in receipts and we ended up at a little over 3.3 million on receipts So we were short Approximately 285,000 dollars now The good news if you if you can look at this is good news, but the church staff did a phenomenal job of managing expenses, right? Through, through a number of different avenues and other things, they did a great job managing expenses, so that we actually ended up the year with a net surplus, right? So they were able to keep the expenses down from budget by over two hundred and ninety thousand. So we actually ended with a surplus of approximately forty three thousand dollars, right? So. That took a tremendous amount of management by the the staff here, and they they should all be applauded for what they did to do that. (laughs) Going into next year, so we completed the budget uh, in December. Uh, We presented it to, to the board, I believe. I can't even remember now if it was December or January. All my months are running together. But presented it to the board, which it's been approved. So the budget that we have today is a three point four million dollar budget. So we are three point six and we're down to three point four. Now that we've finished up the year, we will revisit the budget one more time. The finance committee will be coming together next month during February. We will revisit the budget and should any adjustments need to be made to that budget, the finance committee will recommend as much to the Board of Stewards for approval. Um, At this time, we don't know. We don't anticipate the changes, but we have to be aware of what we did in 2018 and understand the impact to 2019. So we're diligently looking at that. It's somewhat difficult if we look that we cut through various aspects over $280,000 in the budget. Um, So to continue to do that, it becomes more and more difficult to find those areas to do that without hindering the mission of the church, right, and the ministry of the church. So we want to be very thoughtful, very prayerful about that, and we ask for everybody in here, we ask for your thoughts and prayers for us as we go through that, that we may have the discernment to make the right decisions in those areas. Um, If you guys have any questions on this or anything else on the website, if you go to the board of director list and click email board of directors, please do that and send that. That email will actually come to me. Um, So if you send that and I welcome the input, whatever the case may be, so do that globally. If you have any questions on the budget, would like to see a copy of the budget, please ask Valerie Slade. Valerie's sitting here and she can provide that to you. And also be on the lookout in the messenger and also on our website that Valerie will be posting a financial update for this year to date. So we'll consistently, we'll start consistently having those updates posted and supplied. So I think that is it for my financial update. Are you ready, David? All right. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you, Tom. Hold on, Dr. Fitch. So, you, know, you cut the budget by X number dollar. Mm-hmm. Was that outreach? Was it? What, where did it come from? Okay. Did everybody hear that question? Okay, so his question was that if we cut that out of the budget, where did all that come from? So, there's going to be, I'm going to go on a few key areas of where that came from. So, one, from a budget standpoint in salaries and benefits, we had a pretty significant thing out of that, and that was mostly based on timing of when people were hired that were included in the budget. So, that was about $60,000. The other large area was through programs, okay, through programs with the staff, and, and with that, they were asked to be as efficient as possible with the dollars in their programs. So what I would ask is if anybody noticed that the programs changed, and I'm asking that because I didn't notice a change. I think there was just a more efficient use, and people were great stewards of the assets that we had to make sure that we continued with the programs. And In some cases, we actually had expansion of programs. Um, And the last one was in apportionments, okay? So in apportionments, we did not pay our full apportionment in 2018, right? So a decision was made that that's where we were going to go because we needed to retain that cash, and we needed to do that to be operationally sound. So it's not budgeted to do that differently in 2019. I mean, we're budgeting because we want to make sure we pay our full apportionments. And even though we ended up with a surplus, I will just say that there was an attempt that we were going to pay additional apportionments in 19,418, but that didn't get done, but we're going to hold on to that and somewhat earmark that for apportionments in 2019. That surplus. 120,000 dollars. The total apportionment was 412. Total apportionment was four twelve. We short paid one hundred and twenty one thousand. We have not. It, to, to my knowledge, I'm going to say that's the first time we've done that since David's been here. Is that accurate?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were understanding of the situation that uh, we've been in the last three or four years, and because the only other church larger than us has had kind of a ten year. Difficult span, we ended up for like 20 years, we have paid the most apportionments of, uh, or for 10 years, of, I guess even before that, of any church in the conference. So they, they gave us a pretty wide berth and discretion. And then we tried, once the books finally got closed, to like, give them some more money, but they said their books were closed. So that is why I said, Blind uh, Tom said, we are going to try to give it to them <laughs> before the next January 11th. Is there
2: any other questions? Okay, thank you very much.
0: Thank you, thank you Tom. Uh, I know some of you will probably have um, uh, places you need to be, so um, don't hesitate. I, again, when I planned this, I, I didn't know that the bishop's presentation, uh, which, which I really appreciate, uh, I thought it was going to be shorter than that. So I'm going to Um, just share with you for 15 minutes about something happening nationally with the United Methodist Church. Uh, If you'd like to know uh, more about this, you can go to riotexas.org, and there'll be um, information about the General Conference in St. Louis, a special conference which starts, again, February 23rd. You can read about what I'm going to tell you. The other thing is um, I did it. Uh, you may want to. What the bishop did in 45 minutes, he did in an hour and 15 minutes for the people of Missouri five years ago, where he actually shows them the boards without names that they work. It's an impressive process. Um, and you can, uh, you can look that up. I, I guess it, um, uh, email the church office. We can get you that link. Uh, it's on YouTube, but I can't remember the title. Uh, so it's a very um, well thought out process that Bishop Snazy brings with him. So if you'd like to know more, um, let us know. We'll we'll, uh, uh, email you the link. I've I've watched it for you uh, because it's a pretty lengthy video. But let me talk about February 23rd through 26th in St. Louis. The story actually starts in 1972 when the United Methodist Church adopts language in its official rule book called the Book of Discipline uh, that says basically that the uh, the practice of, uh, uh, of, of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. And I just added, uh, I won't say out of the blue, but just added. And that started what has been uh, 40 uh, uh, some odd years of, uh, of uh, haggling in the United Methodist Church around this issue. When I was ordained an elder in the United Methodist Church in 1983, uh, at the uh, altar of uh, Travis Park, United Methodist Church, there was a man um, who knelt down next to me. I, was on, I had like the end row, so he got next to me, um, chained himself to the altar, and gagged himself. Uh, and, uh, and the reason he did that is because he was a person who was gay, who was being disenfranchised by an entire uh, church. He felt like had left him behind and considered him a person of... Uh, uh, of not of worth. So that's just, we've had those up and down battles of um, uh, through the years. Um, uh, different parts of the country tend to see it differently. Typically the Northeast uh, and the Pacific Northwest and California uh, might see it differently than say they, uh, they do in Mississippi. And so uh, what you had is uneven application of, uh, of the language and the discipline. So for example, there was a pastor in Pennsylvania whose uh, son was gay and he officiated at his gay union for his son at his son's request. And he was uh, defrocked. There, the sa- a different pastor does something similar in California and is suspended a day with pay. And so there were, uh, they're sort of uneven, and as society changes and, and, and struggles with the issues, uh, uh, the, the sort of enforcement and accountability of the discipline sort of changes depending on the part of the country, and, uh, and so what we might call ecclesial disobedience begins to rise up among folks that have uh, a view that this, this is not the issue that the United Methodist Church needs to be fighting about. And this is not uh, where we want to close our doors to people. Uh, and so they look at it one way and others say, no, this to them is clear in the discipline. It's clear scripturally. Uh, we do that. So it's, it's uneven. And, and they fight about it every four years at the general meeting. So finally, after more than 40 years of this, They're getting ready to fight through it again. And again, this is at the expense of all sorts of other discussions. Like, as you might know, I have an interest in how clergy are trained and released, um, and how they're licensed, and all that stuff, they were like, um, 300 petitions about um, uh, how clergy get approved and how do we release more creative people into the ministry and fewer hoops to jump through and that sort of thing. They are all shelved so that we can continue to debate the same issue again and again. So finally, in the middle of the last general conference, which by the way, is the only group that speaks for the Nine Methodist Church, not any bishop, not any senior pastor, it is an every four-year meeting. Uh, they stopped the meeting um, Uh, and in 2016 and said to the bishops, you need to solve this for us. And we're going to keep meeting here and you go to another room and figure this thing out. And so they go, they pray, they talk. And what they decided to do was to form a commission called the Way Forward. The Way Forward is a 32 person commission, includes eight bishops, uh, includes a number of lay people, includes pastors, includes representatives from Africa, the Philippines, as well as North America, to try to work out something that can help us get off dead center here and, uh, and move, move forward on issues of mission um, in, in the world. And so um, out, out of this, they spent a year um, uh, and a half and Bishop Snazy was one of the 32. That's why I asked him, do you want to stay and do this? He said, I don't think so. Uh, but you can catch him on a video uh, at the Rio, Texas website talking. Um, uh, there's a link about him talking about this. So they pray together. The interesting thing is they become very close friends, extremely progressive people on the issue, extremely traditional people. They pray together, eat together. Uh, and the good news is they draw close and they learn to talk about this uh, amicably. Amicably. Um, Well, anyway, what they presented uh, to the bishop, three the council of bishops of the United Methodist Church, which is the closest thing we have to a ruling body in the intervening time, these uh, forty-eight bishops in North America and twenty-two others that the bishop talked about, and brought them three plans. And uh, then the bishop selected one of them that they wanted to put forward at a special meeting. I left that part out. When they said, you solve this, they came back and said, we'll bring you back something in 2019. So uh, that's, that's uh, where we are. So at any rate... Um, they brought forward three plans to the bishops, and the bishops talked about it and voted as one they might put forward. Though all three are actually, uh, in a sense, on the table. And the three basically, these are the language that uh, that they are described with. The first is called the traditional plan because it leaves the discipline of the United Methodist Church uh, the same, uh, but what it does is it doubles down on accountability. Uh, so that the, the penalties are clearer, um, uh, uh, so uh, it's it's enforced. Right now it's enforced in some areas, not in others, and so that's known as the traditional plan. There's something also known as the modified traditional plan because all these three plans got sent to the jurisdictional council of the United Methodist Church, which is kind of like our Supreme Court, and they ruled a large part of the traditional plan out of order that they needed to rework it because in the discipline it says that no conference can mandate how another conference disciplines their pastors who are out of line. So, on that technicality or whatever, it got sent back. But basically, the spirit is this language stays the same, stays very traditional, and, uh, and it's, you know, and they can be off with their heads if, if you go another way with permission, sort of. That's a little harsh, but that's kind of how it reads right now. Then uh, one of them um, is called the One Church Plan, which is to say, look, we disagree on this. Methodists have been fighting about this for 40-something years. Uh, So our solution is, they say, take the language out of the discipline and give freedom by context so that if a church in Seattle is led to minister to uh, the gay population and they feel like as a part of that, they need authority to do um, uh, weddings, uh, that authority be granted. But if a pastor in, um, in, in Tennessee or in Texas, uh, on the other hand, isn't forced to do that so that both sides, in a sense, can follow their, um, their conscience up so that no one is um, punished for um, uh, decisions that they make on their uh, church level, and the door is open uh, for, uh, uh, depending on your context, uh, making different decisions on this issue. And so it's called the One Church because we stay together. And research seems to indicate that most Methodists don't really want to fight about this anymore. It's just the extremes on both sides that want to continue to push their issue, you know, which is certainly their, their, their right. But the estimate is about... Seventy-five percent are in the middle. They might be pretty traditional on it, but they're like, well, if, you know, if that's what they need to do in Seattle or whatever, I'm, uh, I can live. And if and the people in Seattle like, if that's what they need to do in um, uh, in Georgia, then that's fine or whatever. So at any rate, the the one church tries to hold the church together. Allowing a latitude, no votes are required unless a church or a conference or a pastor decides that they um, um, they want some sort of vote taken about um, about how things go in um, in their uh, in their congregation. So this is really short, but that's sort of the, the goal. Of the one church is uh, let's stay together with this kind of flexibility. The goal of the traditional plan is let's stay together, but we're all going to play by these, uh, these rules. Then there's a third one called the connections plan, which is to say, look, we haven't agreed on this in 40 years. It's just time to separate. It's just time to go our different directions. And uh, so what they recommend is a realignment of the church and there'll be a branch that'll be very progressive on, on this issue, which is pretty amazing to me that something that the Bible talks so very little about would be like how Methodists define themselves um, in this world. But that's an that's editorial comment. But it would just be, so on this one issue, we're going to split up. And the very progressives, you go, you do your thing, you've got your own denomination. Uh, uh, the very, very traditional, you, you go your way, you... You do your thing, and those of us who have kind of been in the middle all along, just trying to move on to other stuff, uh, you know, you stay and probably in the middle might, might be called the United Methodist Church uh, as we understand it today. And there'd be three uh, different bran- It's called the branches model or the connections model. Now. Uh, The the difficult thing about this one, it recognizes the differences, but it it would require, uh, my understanding is, as many as eight constitutional amendments because there's so much restructuring to form three different branches. And a constitutional amendment must be passed by two-thirds of the um, aggregate voters uh, at every annual conference across the United States, Philippines, Europe, and and Africa, which, which is possible. Um, but anyway, so that's, that's kind of been a difficulty in that area Likely, likely these three things uh, will be debated Oh, by the way, the, the, bis- the bishops by a majority Not a supermajority, but by a majority vote Chose the middle way to try to give uh, flexibility For people to follow um, uh, their, their conscience on it But um, all three are going to be on the table and most people, and there are so many amendments already that none of the three will look like they look today, which is one of the reasons we haven't spent a lot of time or energy in our church because we don't know what's before us until after it actually gets shaped by February the 26th, and then we'll kind of know where we are. But most people predict that uh, these three things When they come to the floor, will be amended, amended, and amended. So, whichever one of the three uh, is the one decided upon, if in fact one is decided upon, uh, because there's no, you know, we haven't agreed for 40 plus years on something, so we're not sure that'll happen. But uh, anyway, that it won't even look like what is what is on the table today. But as Paul would say, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers and sisters. So that's why I'm telling you what little I know, knowing that whatever I tell you is, uh, is, is, bound, is bound to change. There are a series of videos um, that are available at the United Methodist News Service, but also riotexas.org. And you can hear proponents of the three different positions uh, speak persuasively and eloquently about the merits uh, of theirs. And you, so you can be educated. But then again, As I mentioned, it is likely that any of the three, whatever gets adopted, will look a bit different. Um, It is likely that whatever gets decided will probably not be enacted before December uh, 31st, 2020, if even by then. So if the one that requires eight constitutional amendments, uh, it will probably be enacted never. But I mean, we like just tried to change the wording about uh, equal treatment of men and women under the law, just passed a little amendment. Wasn't it something like that? Don, I can't remember. It was it was pretty much a non-starter and it couldn't get two thirds in the United States of America. Um, uh, across. And it was very innocuous and very, very non-inflammatory to anybody, progressive or conservative. Uh, so that's a little nerve wracking uh, to see how that will go. But you, it, I, I just want you to know that because the newspapers are not going to tell you this, and I'm going to tell you this. The United Methodist Church may, in fact, divide over this someday. If it does, it will be the last mainline denomination to have divided. What you need to know is while I tease us because we fought for 40 years over it, the reason we fought over it is it's like a married couple uh, that throw dishes at each other, but they stay married. You know, and, and they get through they get through the spat, and they do other other things, and, and we have stayed together. And uh, other de- under wonder- other wonderful denominations, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Episcopalians, um, uh, uh, Jew- our Jewish brothers and sisters have all already split on this. And so I, I just say I'm um, I'm pleased that at least we care enough about each other, as well as caring about the text and caring about the mission field. They were trying to hold all of those. Now, anyway, um, I have done a thing for the staff, a class, and some other things. I, I, I have uh, opinions, but I don't have a vote. Um, but uh, anyway, it's not mine to inflict on you. Um, this evening, I, I have good friends in every camp who love Jesus, who love the Bible, who love the United Methodist Church. And also who love the people who do not yet know how much they're loved by God. And, and you just need to know that there aren't any bad guys and bad gals in this scenario. There are people trying to follow their conscience. And it just so happens that just like society itself, um, it, um, it brings us into conflict one with another. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, I, I don't know. It, she, the question was, will there be a day this church has to vote? Under the um, one church plan, it would only be if, um, if the church wanted to force a vote. So some, somebody in the, in the church said, you know, we must never allow this, or we must always allow this. But other than that, there's none. Uh, conferences don't have to vote, but a conference could, conceivably. Uh, and again, I'm being very stereotypical typical so, um, about this. Some of you know, one of my good friends is Elizabeth uh, Ingram Schindler, who's a pastor in the Pacific Northwest, but but they're pretty much the poster children for for being fairly progressive. Um, so, you know, I, I guess of a church and at a conference, I want to say, we will only ordain people who are as progressive as we are on this issue. Then they could try to vote that in, But it, but none are required, at least in the way that that it's presented publicly. So um, it is not likely that we would have to vote unless we chose that this was something we'd have to vote under any plan. Now, obviously, if you split into three branches, then you probably, that one, you probably, both pastor has to decide which way he or she is gonna go and congregation might have to decide which are ways. Um, We've tried to study a lot, um, First Presbyterian Church in Houston, And we found that there were only losers in that decision. As you know, it was like a 51-49%, 52-48% split. And then the winners felt bad for the losers and didn't even enjoy winning. And it just, there was a lot of cost to mission and that kind of thing. So it is quite likely, you know, that in some scenarios, I suppose a vote could come. But I I know that a lot of people are hoping to... um, uh, not force that, but it, it may. And if it, and if it comes, maybe a local level is very appropriate because they will know their context um, well. But I am not an expert on, on any of those plans. So that's why I'm just saying the, the general summary. Uh, you could. One of the things, here's the disciplinary problem with that. It's like, can the church vote take a position on marriage? The discipline's very clear about who gets to decide who gets married who doesn't get to decide. Now, whether it's on this property is a whole other matter. So that's what you, that's what you could vote. And then if you could vote, well, we don't want David or whatever to perform a um. That wouldn't be within your prerogative. That'd be ruled out of bounds. But yes, you you could do that. So I, I could see things where that would happen. But that's why I'm saying there's going to be a billion amendments uh, or. You know, but I don't know. I, uh, Bob Scott and I have a mutual friend, Jim Turley. What did he call this, Bob? He said it's like, it would be like a lawyer's field day. I mean, the, he actually read all zillion pages. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. But he, it's, it's, it would be uh, interesting. But um, anyway, but I didn't want you surprised by it. Um, and to know, and I also want you know to, even though we're going to get a lot of bad press one way or the other, be proud of people that tried to love each other, though they had significant differences with each other, and and, and tried to, I think, be biblical with their different interpretations. But I, I don't know anybody in this argument that says I don't care what the Bible says; I just want to do this. I, you don't really meet people like that um, in this. So anyway. Um, and I, you know, my hope is and my prayers that the mission of the church does not get derailed. You know, there's there's a, the bishop gave said fifty percent of um, um, San Antonio were out a faith community. And It's not my place to correct the bishop because he's very very bright. The most recent statistics are up upwards of sixty five percent. So we already the majority of people don't want to walk through our doors because they think of us as fighting each other. I mean, for a whole lot of reasons, and this doesn't help our witness as we keep doing that. So just remember the fact that they took four days to go to St. Louis to argue with each other was because nobody yet has walked out the door. They've tried to stay in the same room. So I'm, that probably wasn't very helpful, but I just wanted you to be... But riotexas.org, and you can go to the Nine Methodist News Service, and you can find bishops and, and, and pastors pitching all sorts of things, and, uh, well, and then you can see. I've just destroyed my sanctuary with water. Um, okay, let me let me close with one other piece of information. Um, uh, Riverside uh, Campus has uh, asked to become an independent uh, congregation, and uh, as you may know, for the last ten years they have been financially independent. But you may also know that when they bought land a few years ago, we had to sign the note uh, as, as the mother church. And so what they're asking is that um, uh, that note be uh, transferred to them and that they, uh, their official ties with us would be devol- dissolved and they will become an independent congregation. The metaphor they use is they feel like they're the 40-year-old son still living in the parent's garage. And um, they've talked about this off and on through the years, but uh, when Scott left last year, they realized this might be a deciding point to figure out if, who they were as a church. So uh, meetings have been held um, with uh, Riverside leaders and Alamo Heights leaders. Our trustees have been uh, briefed and uh, have approved us going Forward, and then our board of stewards has been briefed, and and we will go uh, forward and uh, vote on this in February. But I want you aware, and the Nine Methodist Church has um has has given us their their blessing, uh, and um so that's that's where we are. But again, if you have feedback or questions, you can email me or or Tom. Uh, we've been in on those uh, those uh, meetings. Uh, it, Riverside is, is, uh, an amazing success story for Alamo Heights. And, uh, yeah, they, and they, uh, they are going forward. Now, one thing I do need to let you know, this, uh, uh, is likely they will be an independent congregation, uh, in their, in, as sort of non-denominational. And the reason is we talk a lot about context, um, Spring Branch, Texas is um, an extremely anti-establishment part of the world. And so, like, number one on the enemy's list is the federal government. But getting pretty close is the United Methodist Church, especially after Scott was moved to Austin. So what we've reached and are thinking is, um, and, is that they will be independent, but they will be served by two United Methodist pastors, John Hinkabine and Linda Marceau, who've been serving them. So John and Linda stay in the Methodist system. Um, uh, we keep good relations with the Riverside family, but they are able to um, uh, to serve in their context and not scare off people that uh, move in that area who aren't as comfortable with denominational uh, labels. Uh, and the Bishop and the superintendent are, are fine with that. Uh, they, they just want everyone to know. And so I want to tell you, this has nothing to do with uh, what Methodists do or don't decide February 23rd through 26th. It has to do with their context, uh, the way their people look at the world. And for a lot of them, their, their tie over the years finally became the fact that Bob Scott would make frequent visits and they knew Scott Hare and I met together. And then pretty much as they became more independent. And so um, uh, they're ready to move forward on that. But if you have feedback or questions, uh, please don't hesitate to let um, um, let me know, let Tom know. As I mentioned, uh, we have studied it, looked at it. Trustees have been briefed on it. And our board also has been briefed on it. We think it's a celebration. We look forward to celebrating with them uh, this spring and look forward to uh, their continued um, progress. As you may know, they've, they've started a couple of uh, things that may end up being churches one day, which I guess would make us grandparents in, in a way. So um, anyway, I apologize for rushing the end of this. I, I, I don't know why I thought the presentation was gonna be 20 minutes. I mean, I'm glad he gave us the time. Um, and and I, I will say this in closing um, that, it is highly unusual for a bishop to come on, preach twice on a Sunday morning, come back Sunday night for a congregation, especially since he's one of the eight bishops on the commission on the way forward. And and so he has a dog in the fight because he's on that group. And I think that's one of the reasons, in fairness, he wanted me to make this presentation and not him because he's got Something he 'd like to see happen, but he 's extremely um, uh, busy, and so to make that time I think is is just honoring he, he compliments this church every time we sit down, as he mentioned, I met him for breakfast in March, I met him for lunch in June and then again in September, and he always um, is so uh, pleased with uh, the role that you 've played in the mission of the United Methodist Church in this world, and i frankly I'm very proud of your role and what you've done as well. So um, uh, let me, Tom. Anything else? I thank you for staying extra. I know it was longer than I intended. But uh, uh, if if we need to meet after February 23rd through 26th, um, we'll get together and have discussion. But again, we don't know what we're going to look at. Uh, to know uh, how to guide you. I just didn't want you to be surprised. Why didn't my pastor tell me that people were meeting in St. Louis and talking about the future of our denomination? Uh, so I'm telling you that I'm, I have no idea what they're gonna do, but I know they're meeting. So that's as far as they go. Uh, let me pray. And again, my thanks for, um, for being here. And I'm gonna pick on Jackie. Hello, Jackie. Um, I, this is our current seminary student. And some of you need to know. (laughs) Jackie, would you pray? And then Jackie's going to. I didn't want you to give a testimony. (laughs) I know this. This is Jackie Freeman, and Jackie, you say anything you want, and then uh, it's on, and then send us forth.
3: Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us here. We thank you for our leaders. We thank you for those in our church who are trying to follow your way. We ask that you be with us as we move forward. We ask that you be with David and with the bishop and with the district superintendent as they make decisions for our church. We ask that you come into our hearts and give us peace and openness as we move forward in this process. We know that you are our Father, Abba, the one who looks over us and takes care of us. And we know that you are with us in everything that we do. Guide us all safely home. Be with us through the night and into the morning. We ask all these things in your heavenly name. Amen.
0: Thank you, Thank you all for being here. <laughs> <laughs> I saw you standing out My the stop. You know what?